0: Sweetheart, where all the dancing joys compete, take now your choice, the world is at your feet, all turned into a gay and shining pleasance, and every face has smiles to greet your presence. Treading on air, you yourself look more fair, and the dear birthday elves unseen conspire to flush your cheeks and set your eyes on fire.
1: Welcome to Femme Macabre, a
0: podcast about life's mysteries, oddities, and of course, The, the macabre. macabre, hosted by Stephanie Malosh and Aaron Vance. The poem recited at the beginning of this episode is an excerpt from R.C. Lemon's poem, The Birthday. We've linked the poem in the episode description if you would like to read it in its entirety. Happy birthday. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> copyrighted.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might not want to sing that. Plus it saves me the uh the embarrassment of having someone sing me happy birthday and I don't know what to do. <laughs> How does it feel to be twenty seven? Well, Erin, I'm not twenty-seven yet, technically. While we're recording this, I'm still twenty six, but um I'll be twenty seven officially the day that this episode comes out. So, um, cheers. Happy future birthday Woo-hoo. slash current birthday. <laughs> Thanks. I have been feeling a bit more adulty, though, especially this past weekend. I did a whole deep clean of of my fridge and of my kitchen. But then I followed up with um, drinking a bottle of wine and eating two lunchable cheese and cracker trays for dinner. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm really an adult if I did that. Or drinking wine and eating lunchables is reaching peak adult, you know?
0: I mean, you have a clean fridge. That's like 90 percent of the battle.
1: I mean, it was mostly just easy to clean because I had absolutely no food in my fridge, hence the Lunchables for dinner.
0: (laughs) My fridge when I was in like my first year of university was like bottles of gin, Diet Coke and Red Bull. (laughs) And that was it. That makes me sound like I have a problem.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it just makes you sound like every other first year university student, (laughs) honestly. We have a disclaimer on this week's episode because we'll be dealing extensively with mental illness, suicide, drug, and alcohol abuse and overdose. If you aren't feeling up to these topics, please check back at a time that is better for your own mental health. We will be putting the numbers for various mental health crisis hotlines in the show notes. So if you or someone you know are feeling hopeless, depressed, anxious, or like you may harm yourself or others, don't hesitate to talk to someone. Both Erin and I have dealt with mental health issues, and we know how hard it can be. So take care of yourselves.
0: Today we remember a myriad of musicians and artists who passed away at the tragically young age of 27. The 27 Club has existed in the media since the deaths of Brian Jones, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, and Jimi Hendrix, which all happened within two years of each other in
1: 1969 and 1970. It was after these deaths that the term the 27 Club was coined. 25 years later, public interest in the 27 Club would reach a crescendo with the suicide of Kurt Cobain, frontman for grunge band Nirvana and one of the most famous musicians in the world at the time. It feels almost sinister to call those who died at 27 a club. But this is how it is colloquially named and how we'll refer to this group of people throughout the episode. We mean no disrespect and acknowledge the real people and lives behind these stories.
0: In the 27 Club, causes of death vary from suicide and addiction to freak accidents, murder, or in the case of Brian Jones, death by misadventure.
1: A popular urban legend associated with the 27 Club is the white lighter myth. The myth goes that notable members of the 27 Club had died with a white Bic lighter in their possession. The white lighter itself is a symbol of cannabis culture, and so with it are the associations of drug and party life, and for many members of the 27 Club, drug overdoses were the cause of their deaths, considerably associated with the deaths of Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, and Kurt Cobain. In 2017, however, the myth-busting website Snopes debunked this urban legend. The author of the article confirms that the first disposable lighter was invented in 1973, a full one to two years after the deaths of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison, which makes their having a white Bic lighter on them at the times of their deaths truly impossible. To err on the side of precaution, though, I think I'm going to get rid of my white lighter, because I'm turning 27... And I just don't want to, like, double my chances of getting cursed, you know?
0: Yeah, nobody wants to be cursed, especially when they're only 27. No.
1: It's a young age to get cursed at. No, exactly. It is something that I talked about when I was younger. Like, I wanted to follow in the steps of the greats and die at 27. Um, But now that I'm here, I'm like, uh, no, I haven't really truly accomplished anything major in my life yet. And so now I just feel sad if I die at 27. (laughs)
0: I didn't. I never really wanted to die young. I kind of wanted to like be immortal and take over the world. Yeah. When I was when I was a kid, instead of like knitting club or basketball club, I started Future World Dominators Club in my elementary school.
1: Oh my god! Did you
0: actually? I did. (laughs) So clearly, I was thinking about being alive a lot longer than twenty seven. That's hilarious.
1: I, on the other hand, was a very, very angsty emo 16-year-old, and even though I talked about dying at 27, I think my goal was ultimately to die at a young age, but turn into a vampire. That way I could still live forever. My mom instilled in me a love for 80s pop and my dad some good old classic rock. And I remember every weekend on our drives up to our campground, we'd play the Who Sings This Game, a game that I'd like to say I was actually pretty good at. Um, But my dad would always get me with the Who and the Guess Who, where he'd ask me, guess who sings this, emphasizing the band name. And I just like would not clue in and I'd just be like, oh, I don't know, Dad. And then he'd just be like, it's guess who? How didn't you know? I said it. <laughs> but during my last two years of high school, I went through a massive Doors phase. And I was obsessed with them. And especially Jim Morrison. I mean, he's a hottie. Was a hottie. Rip in peace.
0: He was a hottie. I had a Doors phase too. And a Jimi Hendrix phase. And a Janis Joplin phase. But Nothing. Nothing paralleled the intensity of my Nirvana slash Kurt Cobain phase.
1: Oh, really? I was never really into Nirvana all that
0: much. Oh God. So (laughs) when I was 19, I had these Chuck Taylor Converse shoes that were limited edition Kurt Cobain shoes with his handwriting on them in black. And I wore them until the soles fell out. And then I still couldn't part with them. So I framed them and put them in a shadow box on my wall. No way. (laughs) Yes way. Put stinky
1: puberty shoes on my wall. Oh, man. I mean, honestly, that sounds like something I would do. You know, even though I was obsessed with classic rock and Jim Morrison and knew so much about the 27 Club already, I had never really experienced anything until 2011. I had just graduated high school and I was out gallivanting around Germany with some friends and it was my last weekend there so my friends decided to get together and we were going to go out for drinks but that was the day that Amy Winehouse died. So that night when we went out to the bar in Mannheim, the bar already had shots named after Amy Winehouse. That's a little dark considering she died of alcoholism. Right? Like thinking back on it now...
0: That's pretty
1: messed
0: up. Yeah. And you've told me that story before and it never like hit me how dark and messed up that was until just yeah. now.
1: What about you? Do you remember where you were when Amy Winehouse died?
0: Oh, absolutely. I was studying French in Quebec City um, and I was in my dorm room at Laval University when I heard about Amy Winehouse's passing. My mom and dad had actually called me from our home in Alberta because they knew oh. how much she meant to me and they wanted me to hear it from them. So I cried all night, listened back to Black, and then the next day, I dyed my hair, and I got a tattoo, which is so cringy, to be honest, but I was 17, I'd recently gone through some heartbreak, and my hero had just died. Amy Winehouse was an incredibly talented woman, and she was definitely taken from us too soon. I'll never forget hearing her voice for the first time. It's actually one of my favorite memories. Um, When I was in the car with my dad, I think I was like 12 or 13, maybe even younger, it was about the time that Back to Black came out, so probably about like 2006. Um, And my dad, who's a rock and blues musician, we were in the car, we heard Back to Black, and we were both like, this is incredible, we need to find out who this is. So we immediately drove to the local Walmart in our town. Asked the person working, we like described the song, described the lyrics, and of course it was huge, so they immediately knew who we were talking about. And we bought, we bought Back to Black, and then probably for like the next ten years, if my dad and I were like in the car alone, because he's an incredible singer, um, and I took a lot of singing lessons when I was younger we'd always put on back to black and just like belted out in the car driving on the highway at night.
1: That's a wonderful memory.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so nice.
1: It's actually pretty funny that you mentioned your dad being a blues musician because I had no idea. And my dad is actually a huge fan of the blues. So growing up, I listened to it a lot as well as, you know, all that classic rock. And one blues artist that my dad was really into was actually Robert Johnson, um, who's a very famous name in blues history. He was a legendary just like truly iconic blues musician and songwriter who died just like everyone else that we've mentioned in this episode so far at the age of 27. But the more research I did about him, because I wanted to talk about him during this episode, the more research I did, the more I thought he deserved his own episode. Because what makes his story truly interesting isn't just that he died at 27, but rather that many people believe, like truly believe that he sold his soul to the devil. So um, keep an ear out for a future episode all about the devil at the crossroads myth and all the other celebrities who've allegedly sold their souls for fame and glory.
0: As your birthday present... I'm going to tell you about a similarly, I hate saying tortured soul, but like, let's be honest, it makes sense. I'm going to tell you about another member of the 27 Club who actually didn't technically die at 27. He disappeared at 27. Three days before Christmas in 1967, Sherry Edwards and her husband Graham welcomed their first child, a boy named Richard James. The Beatles' Hello Goodbye was the number one song at the time. Anne Sexton's book, Live or Die, had recently won the Pulitzer Prize for poetry. Both of these cultural monikers, in retrospect, feel like the perfect sentiments to usher into the world the boy that would become the rhythm guitarist and lyricist for the Manic Street Preachers. The Richards family lived in Blackwood, Wales, where a once-booming mining industry had given way to increasing poverty, political apathy, and desperation by the time that Richard Edwards was a teenager. Growing up, he lived in close proximity to cousins and aunts and uncles, and he and his sister Rachel were cared for by their grandmother whenever their parents were at work. Their parents both owned salons and were actually really well-known in the town and community, and considering the economic scene in Blackwood, they actually did quite well for themselves. Richie was very close with his grandmother as a child and was by all accounts thrilled to live so close to family. He was even described as a bit of a goody-two-shoes by a childhood friend and neighbour. In an anecdote from when they were friends, Richie was hesitant to join in with the other neighbourhood kids in playing Ding Dong Ditch. A super sharp contrast, the musician who would, years later, destroy his guitar on stage and damage. Like We're talking like 20,000 pounds of damage, the lighting equipment at the end of a show at the London Astoria.
1: Oh my gosh. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I like broke a ruler at school today and I was like, oh my god, I'm so scared. (laughs)
0: When Richie was nine years old, he spent six weeks at home with his grandmother recovering from a broken arm. His friends would bring his schoolwork home and he would happily complete it and spend his days chatting with his grandma. They formed an even stronger bond, and it was clear that he was an extremely intelligent and motivated child. Oh, he sounds like such a good egg. I know, I love him. As he got older, a cousin who played in a local band got Richie interested in music, adding to an already growing appreciation for art, literature, and film. Like many people lost before their time, he was described as kind, sensitive, and intelligent, and he was especially described as wise beyond his age. Like fellow member of the 27 Club, Kurt Cobain, Richie Edwards wrote... A lot, both lyrics and miscellany, and left behind an extensive archive and discography, for fans and investigators alike to obsess over. From a young age, Richie was fascinated by self-imposed exile. His own great aunt Bessie was a recluse who he rarely saw, though she lived close by in an inherited family home. The people of Blackwood built a mythology around this reclusive, hermity old woman.
1: I hope that's me in the future. <laughs> Just like the witch at the end of the road, you know?
0: <laughs> oh, she was definitely like the archetypal village witch. Especially in Wales, I see it. Yeah, 100%. When he got older, Richie would obsess over other famous artists turned recluses like J.D. Salinger. Richie was also interested in people who had faked their own death or seemingly disappeared without a trace, leading to fans and family members holding on to hope that in... 1995, when Richie disappeared, that he wasn't dead, but simply escaping the life he had found himself in. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Right now, we have a young man in a small town in Wales in the 1980s interested in music, literature, art, film, and politics. Mm-hmm. Upon completing college, aka like UK high school, he went on to study modern political history at the University of Wales, Swansea. It was at this time that he began to self harm and self medicate. His beloved grandmother passed away, and he felt as though his childhood and innocence had truly ended. In addition, Richie was a perfectionist, and he was determined to get a first-class honors degree. He threw himself into studying, and as his nerves about grades increased and his depression about his grandmother increased, he relied on alcohol to sleep at night and turned to self-mutilation and self-starvation to feel a sense of control. In the book Withdrawn Traces, his friends from university recall him self-harming by stabbing himself in the leg with a maths compass until he bled profusely. When he was awarded a second-class honours degree instead of a first, Richie was devastated, and his friends and family were surprised. He'd worked harder than anyone they knew. So even though he only had a second-class degree, only in his eyes, like, that's still a really good degree, he gained a lot of really important knowledge in his university career that would lead to his later kind of persona and appreciation for rock music. He was deeply, deeply invested in political history, and he basically took his political messages and decided to apply them in a way that he thought would disseminate them the most with music. So Richie attended grade school with James Dean Bradfield, Sean Moore, and Nikki Wire, who were the core members of the Manic Street Preachers. But he didn't join the band until he'd finished his university degree. Most accounts are consistent about the fact that Richie had very little musical talent. He was known for not even liking to play the guitar <laughs> and being frustrated that he wasn't better at it. During shows, his bandmates would actually like turn his amp down or off. Oh, no. <laughs> so he once told his bandmates that he was going to chop off his fingers with a cleaver he'd bought so he wouldn't have to play on stage anymore.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And people think I'm a drama queen.
0: But he, he was still an essential part of the band, and they really didn't start making it big till he was in it. So what he did contribute to the band was lyrics and a persona. He was the primary lyricist, and he was hugely influential in promoting the band, even before he officially joined. He would make lists of music journalists and take notes on them. So, that when he sent them demos and letters of introduction, he knew how best to catch their attention and manipulate them. Whenever the band had to do press, it was Richie who was placed front and center. He was kind of like their front man without singing. Oh, wow. And also without being able to play guitar. I'm not like, it doesn't make sense until you watch videos of him talking and doing interviews and performing. Okay. The Manic Street Preachers were politically leftist, and their early aesthetic was a sort of grungy, androgynous glam. Richie's background, as I mentioned before, in political history was reflected in the band's lyrics and attitude. As the Manics gained notoriety and put out more albums, Richie's depression and dependence on alcohol deepened, but his enthusiasm, passion, and intelligence continued to show themselves in his songwriting and just in the way that he presented himself to the world. But in 1991, he was questioned by a journalist from NME of misusing the punk movement and asked whether or not Richie was being authentic. Richie's response was to carve four, like the number four, uh-huh. four real, into his arm with a razor blade <gasps> that he was carrying. He did this in front of the journalist and he cut so deep that he required 18 stitches. And so the scars were so prominent that, like, a year later, his bandmates would joke that whenever he was, like, getting drunk, the scars would turn bright red with the blood coming to his skin from drinking. So every time he'd get drunk, like, for real, would, like, kind of jump out of his (gasps) arm. which is like it's a very striking image and obviously this got the attention of the press. So in 1994 the band released The Holy Bible, an album on which Richie wrote 80% of the lyrics and the album that the Mannix thought would make them huge. It didn't quite make them as huge as they thought it would. It came out the day after Oasis's kind of breakthrough album, Definitely Maybe, mm. and most fans and critics alike think that this is the reason that The Holy Bible wasn't as immediately successful as hoped. Of course, now it's said to be like one of the best albums of all time, but in 1994 people were a little more into The Gallagher Brothers. So, after the release of The Holy Bible, which I highly recommend you listen to, it's pretty awesome. Richie checked himself into the Priory, a psychiatric hospital and rehabilitation facility, and the rest of the band had to perform several times without him. When Richie was discharged from the Priory, he seemed to be doing really well, it, both like in mental and physical health. He wasn't eating quite as well as his bandmates thought he should have been, but he was doing a lot better and he had gained some healthy weight. Richie's last performance was at the London Astoria on December 21st, 1994. It's the infamous show that he destroyed his guitar and caused a lot of damage to the London Astoria. 43 days later, on February 1st, 1995, Ritchie was seen for the last time. He was, you guessed it, 27 years old. The last official and confirmed person to have spoke to Richie in person before he disappeared was bandmate James Dean Bradfield. The records at the London Embassy Hotel where he was staying show that a woman named Vivian visited him. Attempts to find Vivian or confirm her identity have not proved fruitful. The next day, James waited for Richie in the lobby. The two were supposed to travel to America that day to do some promo for the band, but Richie never turned up. A concerned James, who was not used to this behavior from Richie, Richie was actually like a really punctual and reliable person most of the time. So when he didn't turn up, James Dean Bradfield had the hotel open Richie's room, which was unoccupied. A bath had been drawn and left, and a gift box addressed to a former girlfriend was also found in the room. He was reportedly seen leaving the hotel at 7 a.m. 24 hours later, the band manager filed a missing persons report. James continued on to the States, assuming that Richie would show up eventually, and Nikki Wire and Richie's family attempted to contact and locate him to no avail. On February 17th, Richie's car was reported as being abandoned by the Severn Bridge, which was a known suicide spot high above treacherous waters. The car had been there since February 14th. Inside were the wrappings from numerous hamburgers and photos of Richie's family from the recent Christmas holidays. Police stated that it looked as though he had been living in the car for a few days before it was abandoned. Though numerous people have reported seeing Richie in the years following his disappearance, in places as diverse as India, the Canary Islands, and Israel, He has never been located, and a body has never been found. His bandmates and family thought that he had been in good spirits at the time of his disappearance, though he had expressed not wanting to go to the United States to his mother. He also withdrew 200 pounds each day in the weeks before his disappearance, totaling nearly 3,000 pounds. Richie had spoken out in interviews about suicide. But every time he spoke about suicide he spoke about it negatively, stating that he had never and would never consider it as a way of dealing with his depression and eating disorder. He once stated that he was stronger than suicide. A few details make this case particularly interesting, as though it's not interesting enough already. The night before he disappeared, he gave his friend Emma Forrest a copy of a 1934 Russian novel called Cocaine Romance, telling her to read specifically the introduction, which is about the author who allegedly stayed in a psychiatric hospital before vanishing. Could this point to him wishing to disappear and
1: start a new life? Absolutely. That's what I think. Especially since you mentioned earlier that he was obsessed with, like, mysterious disappearances and all that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, if I were to just, like, go, I would probably do that too. Just, like, leave weird hints and mysterious clues
0: with this case, I really don't know. Like, I really want to believe that he is still out there somewhere.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's as much as like anybody could hope for, right? Like, just hoping for the best.
0: Yeah. So, another weird bit of the story is that a cab driver reported to have picked up a man matching Richie's description who spoke with a Cockney accent, like a fake Cockney accent, but frequently lapsed into a Welsh one, and he apparently drove him to near Severn Bridge. This is unconfirmed, but, like, always talked about. However, like, I don't understand why he would have got a cab to where his car was. Yeah. Or maybe they meant,
1: like, it was a cab 27 bridge to come pick him up.
0: Maybe. I'm not 100% sure. Richie had a history of being obsessed with stories of people becoming hermits, disappearing, or faking their own death. So, I do think that this is a possibility, but in all honesty, I'm not sure if it's very likely. Richie had really strong bonds with his family members and friends. He was close with many people, and the way he describes friends and family in his writing makes it hard to believe that he would have disappeared without letting any of them know what his plans were. He was the kind of person who would write 20-page letters to his friends even though they lived down the street. He was really, really good at forming close and strong bonds with people. He really nourished those bonds. He wasn't the kind of person that would neglect a friend. The book With Drawn Traces is actually really interesting. It's the only book about him that his sister approved of and was extensively consulted on, and it, I'm pretty sure it's the first book where the authors were allowed to access his archive. So I think there are other books about him, but considering his sister, who he was really close to, she was only two years younger than him, I think that her signing off on it is significant. In 2008, Richie Edwards was declared dead in absentia. So though their parents have passed away, Rachel, Richie's older sister, has never given up hope that he is still out there somewhere, finding happiness in whatever way he needs. Some people may dismiss this as hopeful ignorance, considering Richie's car was found near Severn Bridge, a known suicide site and he had recently been in a psychiatric hospital. This compelling evidence, however, is offset by the fact that no body was ever recovered, despite the recovery of numerous skeletons from the waters in the weeks immediately preceding his disappearance, as well as years after. All skeletons and debris retrieved from the river were deemed not to have matched Rizzi's physiology, DNA, or any of his possessions. Oh my gosh, wow. I really sympathize with Rachel, and I desperately want to believe that she is right. I think it would be really- Yeah. Like, I want this story to have a happy ending, and I want him to be living in, like, a kibbutz or a hippie commune somewhere, and just, like, dealing with all his problems and demons, and maybe still writing, Mm -hmm. doing whatever he needs to be to be happy. There has been much criticism about the way police handled the case, and the story of Richie Edwards' disappearance has been an enduring presence in the alternative music world to this day. Wow, that was...
1: Huh. Yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, I'd never really listened to Manic Street Preachers before, maybe just like in passing. But that's your story was really fascinating, and I'm gonna look into it, cause this is like right up my alley.
0: I hadn't really listened to them that much either, but my mom told me to look into Richie Edwards' disappearance when I told her we were going oh. to cover the Twenty Seven Club. She is an avid podcast listener, and she mentioned that this story hadn't been covered by many podcasts. Nice. So. That's why I chose it, and I found myself absolutely enthralled in the story, and I, I found that Richie was a really yeah. endearing person, and a really intelligent person. Thanks, Aaron's mom. Thanks,
1: Jennifer. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. <laughs> to end this episode on a slightly lighter note, hopefully. I pulled some cards to see if I could gain a little bit of insight on my year ahead as a 27 year old. So I found this website called Cauldrons and Cupcakes and they have a step-by-step guide on how to do a three card birthday reading. One thing that I learned when I first started learning about tarot cards is that while you're shuffling a deck, I mean obviously there's user error, but if a card literally just like flies out while you're shuffling, it's a sign from the universe. So while I was shuffling last night, the sun card literally just boop, like popped right out of my hands while I was shuffling. I think it was just the universe telling me that, you know, 27 years old, there's going to be so much happiness, so much joy, celebration. I think it's telling me that, you know, it's gonna be a fun time. I'm gonna celebrate and I'm gonna have fun. <laughs> so I think that one was specifically about my birthday. But who knows, maybe it'll just be like, you know, like your 27th year, my 27th orbit around the sun is going to be just like a really awesome, joyous time for me, apparently, which is uh, a big contrast to like the last couple of years. So hopefully that, that would be nice. That would be very nice. Um, it's well deserved. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the first card that I pulled The guiding card was the three of wands and so looking at the card it's someone standing on the edge of a cliff looking over the ocean like looking out into the distance and the three branches or wands that are near this person are sprouting new growth and I took that as I don't know. I kind of, I looked at it and I was like, is this me? Because (laughs) I'm currently living in a flat right by the marina. So I often go out to like think and like stare out like at the boats and that's what this character is doing on this card. He's just staring out at the water, looking at the boats passing by and just thinking about life and like honestly that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I think as a card that is meant to represent like who I am, I feel like that was pretty on point. Yeah,
0: that is definitely you.
1: In terms of how this card is also meant to represent like who I'm going to become over the next year, I really liked the imagery of the sprouting on the branches as like new opportunities are arising and mm-hmm. the characters character character in the card isn't looking at the wands and so there are all these new opportunities that are going to come into my life but I'm not going to see them right away. I think that's a great message. I like the humbleness of it or humility of it. Yeah me too. Mm. So the second card that I pulled so keeping in mind this is my strengths card so where am I going to thrive and succeed? This card was the two of cups reversed. And so this card shows two people coming together and sharing a drink, basically. But since it's reversed, I was kind of taking it as a bit of a separation or a letting go because looking at it upside down, it looked like one of the two characters was giving the drink back to someone. Mm-hmm. Or I was seeing it more as not necessarily a separation, but like a passing of the torch, like it's now your turn to like go on you know I like that and be independent and do things on myself and I'm taking that as I'm going to become more comfortable in who I am and who I want to be and this is the year where all the progress that I've done in terms of like self-care and like mental health and self-love is really going to pay off for me I think I think that's what this card was trying to tell me I like that um all right so the last card that I had the third card was opportunities so what do I have lo- to look forward to this year like what is coming my way and this was the king of swords mm. so in this card you can see the king is sitting tall and confident in his chair and he's holding up a sword but looking at it right away I wasn't really sure if he was standing up to like fight for himself or to defend himself but then I saw that the king of swords is wearing blue robe and so I know that the color blue is usually associated with truth and trust and so I think looking at this card again seeing the king standing tall and confident and holding his sword I'm really seeing this as a card that's saying that I'll be able to stand up for myself and go after what I really want Mm, I like that especially with the, the meaning of the blue like standing up for what I believe in especially and using my voice and having a platform of some sort, hopefully like either as a teacher, as a podcaster, as like something to help bring changes in the world around me. And another thing that I noticed about this king is that there is no emotion in his face. And I thought that was pretty funny because anyone who knows me knows that I am an overly emotional person (laughs) I literally cry like almost every single day not because I'm sad but just because I'm overwhelmed with emotion like all the time angry cry sad cry happy cry like everything anyway so this stone-faced king in contrast to my highly emotional self I think is confirming that I'll be able to go after all of these opportunities and stand up for myself stand up for what I believe in and do it without being super emotional about everything
0: <laughs> I love that reading it's really insightful and it sounds like yeah. it actually does
1: sound very accurate this is my year which is something that my uh my uncle Ed would say to me like every single year In mm-hmm. the years he passed away a couple years ago and I'm still very sad about it and I'm trying not to cry about it right that's now. that's such a lovely sentiment but though. like he was yeah he was like my biggest supporter like all the time <sighs> oh I'm weeping that sounds amazing I'm a
0: weeper I told you. <laughs> Happy birthday, Weepy. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. As fascinating as the stories of the members of the 27 Club are, we cannot gloss over the tragedies behind them and the real people, family members, friends, and partners that have been affected. So, after you listen to this episode, I'd like to ask that you take a moment to remember that members of the 27 Club, whether that's by lighting a candle, saying a prayer, sending out some positive vibes, or putting on an amazing record or re- reading a great book.
1: This week's episode of Fembacob. We hope that you consider leaving us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or leaving us a review on our Facebook page as well. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fembacob. Thanks again for listening, and we hope to catch you next week.